Hello listeners, I wanted to tell you about something that I use and was part of its inception, Joyful.Gifts. Joyful.Gifts is a service that makes giving gifts very easy and joyful. You tell us who you want to give gifts to, set a budget, and then we select buy and ship the gift automatically to every occasion while you have peace of mind. Best of all, you actually save money since the software continuously mines the web for the best prices for you. If you want to give it a try, it's at joyful.gifts. No www, no.com. Just type joyful.gifts in your browser and you're set to go. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the History of the Cards. Episode 84. True Crime. First, a correction. Last time, I slipped when I said Salahuddin would come 250 years later. My mass was way off. I don't know what numbers I was looking at. He would enter Egypt in 1171, only 50 years or so when we last stopped, not 250 years. And speaking where we last stopped, we briefly went over the various problems that the regional powers had to endure, both the field of blood, where the crusader army of Antioch was destroyed in 1119. We had the crusaders, significantly handicapped by the lack of manpower, the Seljuks and their troubles with the kingdom of Georgia, and Fatmid Egypt, where the stable regime that Badr al-Jamali built was about to collapse. You see, in the last day of Ramadan 1121, as part of the festivities at the end of the months, Al-Afdal and Nakalif Al-Amir were scheduled to meet to arrange for the logistics of a berate. By this point, Al-Amir, appointed at the age of five by Al-Afdal himself, was a grown man in his mid-twenties. But still, as far as anybody could notice, he was completely dominated by the vizier, who did the sensible step of marrying his own daughter to the caliph, essentially becoming part of the family, his father-in-law. And he also kept him in the loop and ran travel things by him, like parades and ceremonies and so on, as diplomatic niceties. Now, the vizier at this point was at the tail end of a 20 plus years as the ruler of Egypt. He had already endured several assassination attempts against him by the order of assassins or ambitious men that were seeking his position. They ultimately failed, but were coming closer every time. And despite the repeated military losses against the Crusades, Al-Afdal still kept a very firm hand internally with the economy humming along and the army in check. One obvious weakness in his regime, though, was succession. Like his father, Al-Afdal's relationship with his oldest son and presumed heir was complicated, and the son may have been 
behind one of these assassination attempts. And so, after designating that son as heir in 1115, he walked it back, depriving him from his inheritance in 1118 and keeping the succession line after him, murky. But anyway, on that fateful day in Ramadan, as Al-Afdal was leaving from his meeting with the Caliph, two men attacked the vizier from two different directions, and another assassination attempt. His bodyguards were right there so, pushing the vizier to the back while they took care of the assassins. And while they were busy cutting them down, a third man approached the vizier quietly and put a knife into his heart. The bodyguards eventually realized what's going on and turned back and killed the third assassin. But it was too late. Al-Afdal was on the ground laying in a pool of blood. The vizier who ruled Egypt for the last 28 years have died, leaving a complicated legacy where he maintained order and rule of law, but so a significant decline of the Fatimid might and prestige by the arrival of the crusaders. Now, the burning question here, who did it? The obvious first suspect would be the order of assassins, and they, of course, claimed that it was their work. Not only they held a major grudge against Al-Afdal, as he was the one behind the death of Nazar, the assassination style, where the assassins made no serious effort to get away, is typical for the order of assassins, who saw their death as martyrdom, and generally had no getaway plan. But before chucking it to the Order of Assassins and moving on, there is a few plot holes here that need to be filled. First, unlike in Syria or farther in the East, the Hashashins never really managed to establish a solid network in Egypt in the time of Al-Afdal. And as this was following a private meeting with the Caliph, a spy would need to be pretty well placed in the palace to time the assassination right. And if they are in this position, why not go for the caliph himself? In the same time, Al-Afdal was no slouch, building a massive intelligent infrastructure, specifically to keep an eye out on the assassins, who he deemed as the most serious threat to his regime. So, to fill these plot holes, some historians point to the caliph himself as the one behind the head, with possible coordination from someone in Al-Afdal's circle, specifically a certain official named Abdullah, and given the title Al-Ma'mun. He was sort of Al-Afdal chief of staff, and definitely in the know about the vizier movements. Now, both of these guys, the caliph and Al-Ma'mun, are prime suspects, because as soon as Al-Afdal died, they seemed to be ready to take advantage. The Caliph personally went to Al-Afdal's residence and confiscated and confiscated all the wealth that he could find, something in the tune of 4 million dinars. And Al-Ma'mun immediately rounded up 
all of Al-Afdal's sons and imprisoned them. Shortly after, to replace Al-Afdal, Al-Ma'mun was appointed as the vizier. So, it sure looked like a plan coming together perfectly. Maybe it was the assassins, and Al-Amir was just quick on his feet. Who knows? That's when a true crime podcast could help. But for us, all that matters here is that Al-Afdal have died, and Al-Ma'mun have replaced him. For a second, despite the assassination, it seemed like this was going to be an orderly transition. It was only a little bit of blood. Al-Ma'mun was an experienced administrator, and everyone in the army was falling in line quickly. Unfortunately, it was only for a second. Al-Afdal was truly, barely keeping things together. And the transition after his death quickly became a full-blown crisis, one that the Fatmids never really got over. The problem was, while Abdullah al-Ma'mun thought that he was getting al-Afdal job, where the Caliph is only there for ceremonies and diplomatic niceties, al-Amir had no interest in being a puppet, and expected al-Ma'mun to be just one of his many servants. And so, to make a long story short, both men started to plot against each other, and the caliph eventually arrested and executed the new vizier. And this time, he did not repeat his mistake, electing not to pick a vizier, and ruling directly handling the day-to-day administration by caliphal decrees. This, however, was a problem. By this point, the army of Egypt was too big and too unwieldy for the ballast to manage. Al-Amir, despite his best intention, probably could not tell the sharp end of his beer. He had never went on campaigns, and in all likelihood, he had never even left Cairo, being sheltered and contained by Al-Afdal. As was the typical pattern when the army became too big and too unwieldy, First, economic problems surfaced where the treasury could not continue to pay the soldiers. And so, as a workaround, lands were granted to generals as payment for them and their descendants, and they paid their own soldiers from the proceeds of these lands. Following that, these lands became their own little fiefdoms, and the soldiers lost all interest in maintaining a general defensive Egypt beyond that little plot of land that they owned, and with no soldiers to protect the Nile Valley, Bedouin tribes in the desert became active and raided farmlands, which worsened the economic situation, i.e. there is even less money now to pay the soldiers, and the vicious cycle continued. So very quickly, a decade of misery took hold, and the regime as a whole was collapsing under its own weight. Rife internally was unrest, and externally was even more losses to the Crusaders, most significant of which is the city of Tyre, which, for the record, fell while Al-Ma'mun was in charge, and may have been the reason that the Caliph pulled the trigger on getting rid of him. Even inside the Coptic Church, 
Macarius, our absent patriarch, died somewhere around 1128, if not earlier, and no one really bothered for a replacement. The Cairo elite were happy as they were with Jean, son of Sanhut, and it was neither safe or practical for a group of bishops to get together and ordain someone. To do what? Sit in a monastery locked away like Macarius was? Clearly, it was better for them to manage on their own for now until things get better. Also, to keep an eye out for the big picture, right about now, the soldiers were emerging out of their crisis in 1128. I'm going to get back to them in the end of this episode, but just keep them in mind to keep all the dots connected. The Crusader situation was also kind of stabilizing, with a couple of strategic marriages that brought nobles, knights, and money from Europe. Our Fatmids, so, well, they continued to plunge deeper into chaos. We are told by Muslim sources how Al-Amir, ruling in his own right, appointed a former monk, a certain Ibn Kusa, to head the treasury. Ibn Kusa, either out of the desperate economic situation, or because he was corrupt, or maybe both, went on a campaign of false confiscation from the civil elite, Christian and Muslims, that made him extremely unpopular, at least among those elite. A thirteenth apostle, lord over the heads of the government and the church, as his enemies liked to smear him. Either way, whatever he acted in the interest of the state, and was a simple monk, or a corrupt oligarch, his unpopularity among the elite, combined with the fact that he was a Christian pleased over Muslims, a no-no as far as the mob was concerned, meant that he could not survive for long. After being threatened with a popular rebellion because of Ibn Kusa, Al-Amir in 1129 arrested the formal monk and two of his assistants. The latter was imprisoned, but Ibn Kusa was beaten to death with shoes, beheaded, and his corpse nailed to a plank to float down the Nile. And it really gets worse. Less than a year later, the Order of Assassins, perhaps in their greatest hit, finally got to the Caliph himself, killing Al-Amir in 11 Terry. We are told how the Caliph was on an island offshore from Fustat and crossing over a narrow bridge to witness a celebration, the day that the Nile reaches its highest point, in early September, coincidentally the Coptic New Year. There, on a bridge, unprotected by his escort, who were spread out who were spread out ahead of him and behind him, he was jumped by nine assassins and stabbed to death. No true crime investigation needed for this one. It was definitely the assassins. As you would expect, the sudden death of the Caliph cascaded into a succession crisis, as Al-Amir had only an infant son as his heir, 
and no strong viziers to take charge. First, a cousin was declared a regent over the infant son by a minority faction of the army. But then, the youngest son of Al-Abdul, spared because he was a child when his dad was murdered, and very popular with the Armenian cohort of the army, managed to execute a coup, overthrow the government, and imprison the cousin. The cousin jailer was a certain Radawan ibn Walkhishi. Remember his name. He would show up again next week. As for Al-Afdal's son, who was trying to rule Egypt but had no caliph, well, he kind of abolished the Shia dynasty altogether with a little theological trickery of proclaiming that his caliph was Al-Mahdi, i.e. the guy who will come at the end of the world. And so long as this Mahdi was not around, well, he was in charge. Unfortunately for him, this was a little too much for the sensible Shias in the palace, and he was murdered in less than a year, which brought the cousin out of prison, where he declared himself caliph, with the infant son of Al-Amir vanishing somewhat in this convoluted journey. And so, by 1131, we have a new branch of the family taking power, with the first caliph of that branch taking the title Al-Hafiz. Now, this was a significant development. The whole Fatimid theory of divine right to rule rested on succession from father to eldest son. Last time a younger son took power, the order of assassins and a whole new sect of Shia Islam was born. In a similar fashion, this time, when a cousin took power, Yemen broke off from Cairo, and another new sect of Shia Islam emerged. Now, we have the Nizari Shias, i.e. the Order of Assassins, spread in various locales between Iraq and the Silk Road, the Yemeni Shias, who refused to acknowledge the cousin, and at least for the moment, held out for the infant son of Al-Amir to emerge, and the Shias in Cairo, sometimes called the Hafizaya sect after the Caliph, isolated, and in a few years from now, would completely go instinct, while the other two sects would survive, arguably to this day. Theological issues aside, the first thing that Al-Hafiz did when he took power was to sensibly appoint an army man to try and put the genie back in the box and tame the unwieldy army. He did have a problem, so. If he picked the wrong soldier, well, he may find himself deposed and killed with a soldier taking the throne. Remember, the Fatmids, since they came over from North Africa, built their entire legitimacy and being immense, father passing to son, all the way back to Ali, the son of law and cousin of the Prophet. Al-Hafiz was not part of this line, and so his legitimacy was no better than a random general from the army. To solve this problem, 
he begged a certain Abu al-Fath Yanis, a Christian Armenian, to be his vizier, who was a personal assistant, possibly, possibly a freed slave, Tal Avdal. As such, Yanis was in the very heart of the army and Al-Avdal administration, so he was very capable and able to contain its factions. And as a Christian, Yanis would be seriously handicapped if he tried to depose Al-Hafiz and take the throne. Problem solved, right? No, not really. Yanis did his job well, too well, executing and eliminating independent generals and decreasing the army size. Essentially, beginning a process of transforming that unwieldy army into his own private army that is loyal and under control. As you guessed it, loyal in that context meant loyal to Yanis, not to the caliph. And so, sensing a threat of being completely shoved to the sidelines, and honestly pushed by his sons, who were very ambitious and did not want a powerful vizier on their way to the throne, Al-Hafiz poisoned Tianis in 1131 or 32, depending on the source. And so, the crisis continued, with a new thread of tension that the Christian vizier assassination introduced, where Christians in Egypt, Armenians or Copts, would be specifically targeted with suspicion. Al-Hafiz needed something to prop his legitimacy after Yanis died, and to keep the army loyal. So, he briefly tried to hype up a campaign of jihad against the Crusaders, that we will get into in a second. But the point is, Getting rid of Yanis, a capable general, was dangerous, since there were many in the army that were loyal to him. And so, casting him as a potential traitor, since he was a Christian, was extremely helpful. As a Christian, he could not be trusted to fight the Crusaders, right? Which the army bought, at least in the short term, as there was still a large cohort of Nubian slave soldiers who were mostly biased Muslims. So post Tianis and that aborted short campaign against the Crusaders, we end up with a serious factional division between the Christian Armenians and the Muslim Nubians in the Egyptian army. With that tension came a general feeling of hostility toward Christians in Egypt, where several long-serving Christian officials were dismissed from the government. And instead of them, Al-Hafiz appointed rich Sunni Muslims, who are known as Al-Ashraf, basically guys who claimed to be descendants from the Prophet himself, and historically have been very hostile to Fatimid rule. Radawan, the jailer, remember him, could count himself as one of those Ashraf. Again, important details for what is to come, i.e. a full-blown civil war between the Armenians and the Nubians, and then the Armenians and those Ashraf, where religious overtones would play a major role and the Coptic patriarch would be imprisoned in the process. But that's for next week. 
For now, the tension in the air against the Christians, combined with Sean, the Bishop of Musr, advancing age and probable disability, pushed the elite in Cairo to consecrate a patriarch, breaking completely with the tradition of gathering bishops and soliciting candidates from the monasteries. This time, they just picked one of their own, a layman from the class of Coptic administrators that ran the government, one who would be a significant departure from his predecessors in many ways, with a streak of reforms and a flurry of significant achievements. His life and story are written by several sources given his impact. All of them were kind and reverent, a significant departure from the narrative of Ibn Khaldun, which stops at the ordination of John, son of Sanhut. Our new patriarch, Gabriel ibn Tariq, or Abu Ala before he was ordained, started his career working in the Ministry of Correspondence, and then, eventually, as part of the staff of the Treasury. As such, he was both an experienced administrator and highly educated, possibly fluent in multiple languages, at least in Arabic and Coptic, given his work in the Ministry of Correspondence. On top of that, he really had a good reputation in Cairo as a pious man. As the history of the patriarch puts it, he was, quote, a man of middle age, wise, good, learned, experienced, and an excellent manner of life. So, all in all, from the very beginning, it looked like it would be a good pick. The only thing is, as I alluded to before, his ordination was basically an agreement between the civil elite of Cairo and the priests of Alexandria. None of the bishops or the monks knew about the ordination, let alone consulted in it, which as you would expect, did not go over too well, especially in the beginning. In his first visit as the patriarch to the monastery of St. Macarius, the biggest monastery of the time, he had to deal with hostile and skeptical reception. Presumably, when praying the liturgy, in the end before communion, he added a tiny part alluding to the body of Christ becoming, quote, one with his divinity, i.e. the Miaphysite Christology, with the whole one versus two natures debates going all the way back to Chalcedon. The monks were all up in arms about this addition, which they did not practice, and basically told him to stop saying this part, or they would not acknowledge him. Gabriel did not back down so. He knew his stuff, and was quite capable of going toe-to-toe with the monks in deep theological waters. And eventually, he did get his way. Getting the monks to agree to say the phrase, it became one with his divinity, and also adding, without confusion and without mingling, to guard against another heresy, where the divinity swallows the humanity. This phrase was a major achievement. To this day, it is the standard practice on all Coptic churches. Unfortunately, at the time of Gabriel, 
the state of Christian education in Egypt was really non-existent. And many in Upper Egypt refused the without confusion and without mingling part, and they saw it as an innovation, something that you do not do in Orthodox Christianity. Gabriel, for his part, despite his energy and knowledge, was really battling in a lot of fronts, as we will see next week. This one, by far, was the least practical. So, he kind of let the folks in Upper Egypt be. And they, quote, continued in their custom, which was known to them. Now, in addition to this rocky start, Gabriel's reign would be full of reforms. Too many to get to this week, and will probably take most of the episode next week. Gabriel is an important figure, perhaps the most important in the patriarchs of this period, alongside Abraham ibn Zarah, he who moved the mountains if you remember. So he really needs his own episode. Instead, to end this week, I'm going to jump chronically in time a little bit, and we would go through the events in the East and the Crusader states that will eventually lead to the Second Crusade. You see, six months or so after the ordination of Gabriel, King Baldwin II of Jerusalem died. After a solid run, where he constantly battled one crisis after another, but managed to grab some of the territories of the Fatimids as we went through, and through strategic marriages to his daughters, four of them, he established a kind of a new aristocratic class, one that he could draw on to govern various cities and towns. His wife was an Armenian Christian, and so that new aristocratic class was slowly mixing and assimilating European and Middle Eastern norms and culture, in a way becoming more and more foreign to the European knights and merchants landing for the first time in the Holy Lands. King Baldwin's oldest daughter, Melisande, was matched to a rich noble from France, a certain folk, who brought money and knights to Jerusalem, badly needed given the constant raids and battles in Baldwin's reign. During the transition, which was not as smooth as you would expect, as Millicent was popular and strong-headed and wanted to rule jointly with her husband, which he found completely ridiculous. A woman ruling jointly with her husband was not your typical arrangement, and he, a nobleman with plenty of ego, could not tolerate. Eventually so, they were reconciled and he came around when that he really would not survive for long without her. Anyway, in this transition, Al-Hafiz initiated his brief campaign against the Crusaders. That was more of a propaganda mobilization to cast him as the legitimate caliph than an actual war effort. It went nowhere, but it was really the beginning of a renewed campaign to remove the Crusaders altogether. The Fatimids posed no danger, since they went from one crisis to another. But the soldiers, well, it was a different matter. In 1128, a Turkish warlord, known for his excessive violence and ruthlessness, was able to take control of both Mosul in Iraq and Aleppo in northern Syria. 
Zengi, the warlord, was truly a fearsome individual. His excesses were legendary, even by the standards of the time, an excessively violent and cruel time. As was the pattern with Turkish warlords, Zengi had no interest in jihad or crusades or whatever. The crusaders were tough opponents with a string of fortified castles and cities. So the effort was simply not worth the reward. His primary objective was to cow the other warlords into line and collect tribute or taxes, depending on your perspective, from the rich Iraqi and Syrian cities. The only thing that even brought him into the circle of the crusaders was that he wanted Damascus and the crusader states kinda stood in the way between Aleppo and Damascus. Now, I'm not really going to go into his extensive campaigns in Syria, because they're outside of our scope, but in one of these campaigns, where the ultimate goal was Damascus, he ended up crucifying an entire garrison of a town that did not surrender immediately. And afterward, to rule the ruined town, he appointed an obscure Kurdish soldier, Ayyub ibn Shadi. Remember that name, Ayyub. Eventually so. He finally managed to get to Damascus itself, and was so close to capturing the city. And just before it happened, in a fascinating move, the Turkish military governor of Damascus, rather than give the city to Zengi, a cool overlord, he asked for the assistance of the crusaders, and in return, he promised them a monthly tribute of 20,000 dinars, and some territories as well. King Folk jumped on the opportunity, and he moved his army toward Damascus to relieve it. Yeah, the crusades, despite its popular mythology, had plenty of Christian-Muslim alliances fighting together than one would expect. In that specific situation, so, Zengi, not wanting to fight a dangerous battle on somewhat equal terms with both the Crusaders and Damascus together, retreated, but now was an eye to weakening the Crusaders, only if he spotted an opportunity. Three years later, that opportunity came. Zengi, in one of his many yearly campaigns, went north of Edessa against some obscure Kurdish warlords who were becoming too independent. They, learning from Damascus, asked the lord of Edessa to come and help them, with a promise to pay him tribute and cede some territories. And the lord was happy to oblige gathering the garrison of Edessa and moving the Kurdish territories to protect it from Zengi. And that was Zengi's opportunity. Learning from his spy network that the garrison of Edessa was stripped, he switched targets and forced marched his troops to Edessa in Rukar time. He then attacked the city relentlessly, racing to take down the walls before a relief army from Jerusalem shows up. And a day before Christmas 1144, Edessa fell to Zengi. Like Jerusalem when it fell, Zengi's soldiers 
spared not a single soul of the city, massacring its entire population. The first crusader state had fallen, and as such, the second crusade is about to begin. Thank you for listening, farewell, and until next time. Thank you.